0: So hello everyone, my name is Damian Shield and I'm the senior director at the Institute for Medical Simulation at the Center for Medical Simulation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the weekly webinars. Um, we're lucky, uh, I'm honored to uh, be able to host Jeff Cooper uh, for this session on Meet the Author. And uh, after a few introductory remarks, Jeff, I'll be asking you to introduce yourself and uh, have this conversation with me and with our global audience about work that you've done recently, but also about the history and future of patient safety and healthcare simulation. The Center for Medical Simulation, some of you, most of you might know, is an independent nonprofit based here in Boston, Massachusetts that serves the Harvard teaching hospitals as well as their national community and simulation. And Jeff, having been our founder, uh, uh, of course knows all about it and we're here in great part for his effort and uh, I myself joined about four years ago. I'm also an emergency physician based at the Brigham and uh, and along with my colleagues the host and coordinator of the weekly webinar series. We created this weekly webinar series and Jeff if you don't mind going to the next slide. Um, during the COVID-19 pandemic when we were really interested in being connected internationally with both our colleagues and our graduates and really try to make a difference in what we can do as healthcare simulation educators and patient safety folks as we were headed into the unknown and had to socially distance and really remaining connecting connected, remaining relevant and learning were our goals. And I invite you to visit on our website uh, many of the recorded sessions from previous weeks, as well as uh, returning for announcements on future weeks. You can go to the next slide, Jeff. I'd like to propose our agenda for today, which will be uh, welcome and introductions. Uh, the main conversation with the author, and uh, this week will be Dr. Jeff Cooper, and in future sessions, we'll be inviting other leaders in healthcare and simulation to present their current work. We'll take questions from the audience through the Q&A. Please feel free to interact with us by placing your comments in the Q&A box. Uh, I'll be able to relay your comments to Jeff while he's giving us a presentation as well as during the Q&A section. And at the end, I'll Mm. be helping us wrap up with some future opportunities let you know about the next few weekly webinars that are coming up and some other sessions. So I um, wanted to uh, ask uh, Jeff if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a little bit of your background and uh, trajectory. uh, I know you're uh, not fully retired, you're definitely very active in both our community and and in several other venues. So I, I don't want to go to say that uh, it's the end of your career, but it certainly has been an illustrious one. And uh, you're a professor at Harvard. So tell us all about uh, your background and, and how you got here. And well,
1: I'll, I'll, give you the ver- the, I'll give you the very, very short version. So uh, I got to the Mass General in 1972 in what was then called the Department of Anesthesia. Uh, I'm a biomedical engineer by training and uh, during the 70s got to do some research in what was the early research in human error in in anesthesia and use that work to really create a whole career about around patient safety and helped to found the anesthesia patient safety foundation and started his research program which ended up funding a couple of the early simulation projects including dave Dave gabas how i got to know him uh and it was through that that i became introduced to simulation and saw simulation as being this incredibly valuable tool for patient safety. So I come to simulation through the lens of, of patient safety, not just through education. Uh, so I, when people ask me, what do you do? I say, I'm a patient safety guy. Um, and, and we started CMS in 1993 uh, by, uh, I managed to get all the anesthesia departments of the hospitals affiliated with Harvard Medical School to collaborate and you know, throw the money in, and support it and get the first mannequin. Actually, it was the first mannequin off of the, the assembly line from that was company then MedSim, which is no longer in business, uh, at least not that MedSim. And um, uh, and it's from that that CMS came. We changed the name from the Boston Anesthesia Simulation Center to the Center for Medical Simulation in, uh, I think it was 1997. So we've been operating over, because it's close to 25, over 20 to 25 years, maybe it's 27 years. Uh, and through that I was the executive director and also during that time my career as a biomedical engineer I uh, was running the department of biomedical engineering first I was the associate director uh, starting in around 1980 and we created this department of biomedical engineering at the Massachusetts General Hospital and later when it was merged in the mid 90s I was the director of biomedical engineering for the healthcare system so I was doing the simulation and the biomed work at the same time and retired from the biomed work in 2009, and then kind of got more semi-retired a few years ago from CMS, so I call myself semi-retired now. Uh, still have just the fun, active, professional stuff, and I tell people, you have this to look forward to in your lives, is the best time of my life, and uh, if you play it right, it can be the best time of yours, too. So well, we're, I can- We're, we're lucky guys. many
0: of us, many of us have benefited from your direct mentorship, Jeff, um, because you have that way of influencing our thinking and mostly by getting us to think about new things. And I thought that having you come talk about your work, this article from Simulation in Healthcare that's forthcoming, um, would be a way to get that global mentoring going, really multiply, because so many people would be so interested to hear about how a biomedical machine failure could be related to healthcare simulation. So uh, really looking forward to that.
1: All right. Well, if you like, I can talk about how that came about, how I got here. Uh, and where it starts is, uh, so in my role as associate director of biomedical engineering back in the 80s at the Mass General, uh, among lots of other things, I would often get involved in leading the device investigations. And it was really frustrating because when there was some failure, uh, people would pay all their attention to the patient and they might put the infusion pump or the anesthesia machine back in with the inventory and we wouldn't be able to find it, or they would throw out the pump set and you wouldn't really know what happened because you couldn't get the disposables and found this very frustrating. So uh, I went about writing a protocol and started to train people for how you respond to a a critical event. And in 1993 with my other colleagues from uh, Dave Cullen from MGH, John Eichhorn from Beth Israel, uh, was then Beth Israel Hospital, Jim Phillip from Brigham and Women's, Bob Holtzman from Children's Hospital, Um, we published these administrative guidelines for response to an adverse event. And I wrote the draft of this and was working on this in the late 80s. And I I think we had just approved these as a guideline within the Harvard Medical School Department of Anesthesia. And so I had them. And somebody called me from the operating room, one of the technicians, I was responsible for all the biomed, including the clinical engineering in the OR, which is really where my life started, was the clinical engineering group in, in anesthesia in the OR. And it was later that it was hospital-wide. So somebody called me and said, we just had a fire in the operating room. And could you come down and help out? So I threw on some scrubs uh, and grabbed these new administrative guidelines and took them with me to the operating room. And fortunately for me, there was a technician there, whose name's Bobby Mancuso, uh, who was actually a technician for surgery, and he already done the right things. He didn't even know about these guidelines. He had sequestered the laser, it was a CO2 laser, and he had sequestered all the drapes. And what had happened was there was a young patient who was having a, a relatively simple elective uh, gynecological procedure, and she was in the lithotomy position. I'll show you a video about this in a few minutes. And During that procedure, a fire suddenly burst out and they threw saline on the drapes. They got the fire out, but not before the patient had third degree burns on the back of her thigh and the back of her calf. So here I was in the operating room and the surgeon is asking me, geez, what should we do? And so that's a whole other aspect of the story that's not in the paper that if people are interested, I could share. Um, but the one thing I wanted to do was follow these guidelines. The part of it is make sure that we learn what, we, what happened. How did this event happen? And immediately the surgeon was, geez, this laser failed. That was her opinion. Uh, and it failed and that's what started the fire because as she said, I just uh, moved the wand aside and suddenly this fire burst out. And so the question was, what happened? And that's how uh, 30 years later, I came to write this article the case of the inadvertently triggered laser.
0: So you're saying, Jeff, you were actually there moments after the fire. Correct,
1: like that, yeah.
0: This was like, you actually got to essentially be at the scene of the crime. Yeah, um, it wasn't crime, it wasn't <laughs> crime. <laughs> but from the beginning, uh, really fresh there, and that's uh, so great. I it's. Uh, I also am really enjoying hearing from you, because I read it, in the page, and I hope that uh, our audience does too, the, the difference between he- reading it on the page and being able to hear the excitement and intensity from you. So this is great.
1: Tell us more yeah.
0: about how that happened that day and kind of what happened subsequently.
1: Yeah, well, it was a sentinel event in my life. There are lots of aspects of it that I just won't, won't forget. And I won't be able to talk about all of those here. There just won't be the time, but I wanted to concentrate on the aspect of what turns out what we did of using simulation or you could call it a reenactment to investigate this event to learn what happened because uh, again there were other lessons from this but that particular experience was really important for me there was an intensity around talking with the surgeon about how to talk with the patient's mother and those kinds of things Uh, and then this whole investigation itself was just really fascinating Uh, so here we are with the laser device, a CO2 laser, which was locked in a closet. And again, fortunately, the technician had saved the drapes, which were critical. And so I knew enough to say, well, this is a serious event. It'll probably be litigated. So we shouldn't be the ones investigated on our own, because people would wonder if we tampered with something. So I contacted somebody I knew, It was then what was then called the Emergency Care Research Institute, is now called ECRI Institute, and I knew the person there, Mark Bruley, who was their forensic investigator, among other things. And they had a consulting arm. So I called our insurance company. Uh, name? It's called Crico. It's a captive insurance company for the Harvard Medical School of hospitals. And I contacted somebody there. I said, "Look, if I get Crico, if I get CRICO, if I get ECRI Institute, then Emergency Care Research Institute, to come here, uh, would you pay for it?" And to my surprise, they said yes. I think it cost like two thousand bucks back then. Again, this is 30 years ago. So I called Mark. He flew to Boston. I think it was probably like two days after the event happened. And we managed to get an empty operating room, which is much harder to get these days. But then we could get an operating room. It actually was room 10. I remember that. And we went into the room and Mark, it was Mark's idea to do this recreation. And I'm going to show you a video. We video the entire thing. And this is in the days when video cameras were these big, huge things. They were uh, you know the like a home recorder. It wasn't a professional one, and we videoed all of it. And actually, had the surgeon and the scrub nurse were both there. I don't recall if the anesthesiologist was there. Frankly, the video I'm going to show, they had already left the room, but we, again, under Mark's direction, recreated this whole event. So I'm going to show that video now, and it, you'll be able to hear Mark's voice. And he'll talk about some of it and I'll stop it and explain a few things as we go along. So you can see here that this is the lithotomy position that the patient was in with the legs up in the stirrups. And you'll see Mark talk through it. This is a recessa anti-mannequin. And this again is an operating room. And I don't know who this fellow is here or this person is here, uh, but uh, Mark's partner who came along will be in the background. So I'll play it now and let's, See what Mark says.
2: A CPR resuscitation mannequin in place of the patient with legs in a general lithotomy position as they were during surgery. The articulated arm for the CO2 laser is uh, generally located in this area prior to use and immediately after use, from what we've been Most of the setup has been uh, performed and the drinking has been performed with the assistance of who was the instrument nurse on the case.
1: The yeah, by the way, we bleeped out the name of the of the, the nurse that he he mentioned her name, so we bleeped that out. <laughs> A CPR resuscitation mannequin
2: in place of the patient with legs. And immediately after use, from what they most of the setup has been uh, performed, and the draping has been performed with the assistance of who was the instrument nurse on the case. The CO2 probe was about here prior to the, uh, it's used for cauterizing a switch. This is the foot switch that activates the laser. It was apparently activated once. Okay, uh, pull back. It was activated once. This was um, moved out of the way and then the
1: foot switch was also moved back out of the way. So I'm just going to leave this up here and and make a couple other comments about this. Uh, Again, before Mark did this video, the surgical team was there, the nurse set up all the drapes, the surgeon talked through everything that she had done. And one thing that you don't see in here is what the surgeon did, um, what we think happened, he didn't demonstrate this in the real case. So the surgeon's practice was to kick the foot switch out of the way so that she wouldn't accidentally hit the switch because in those days there was no standby for the laser which there is now so the laser when it was on it was on you couldn't temporarily shut it off and she knew that if she hit the switch it could momentarily activate the laser so what we are we're almost absolutely sure happened is when she kicked the switch away she momentarily tapped the switch. And what we demonstrated, but I'm not showing that all video here, is, uh, and you could see this, when you laid out the drapes, the burn drapes, you could see where there's a pinhole in the top. Can you see my cursor there, Damien? Yeah. yeah. There was a pinhole right here in the top drape. And then below that was a burn drape. And there was a cotton drape that was on the footboard below here, sorry, on the footboard below and that drape was all burned. So what happened was when the laser was accidentally a- activated, it shot through the top drape, and the laser had some cooling nitrogen. So the nitrogen would prevent a fire from stop- starting in the top drape. The laser shot through the top drape, hit the cotton on the bottom there, and, it, and as Mark demonstrates late, not again, Not I'm not showing that in the video, you could just by a, a little bit of a touch on the switch, you could hit a very dry cotton drape and it would smolder and then burst into flames. This, and is, so we
0: like, this is like the CSI investigation recreating the moment and you've got it here on video. It's all, This could be the first in situ simulation. I, I don't know if it had been documented prior, Jeff, but you got uh, simulation equipment and real equipment into the Act, not the actual operating room, but an operating room, and then recreated, brought the participants back, and talked to them about it. So that's, uh, seems like you got a lot of insight from this process.
1: Yeah, and again, I credit Mark Bruley. I mean, it was his insight. I would have thought to do this. Uh, I called him as a forensic expert, He's and he, he just recently retired. And by the way, his name is, he's mentioned there. Uh, I offer for him to be a co-author, but he said he didn't you know, I had already written the paper, but I would have been happy for him because he did help edit it. Um, and, and this was as much his as mine, but he said he didn't feel like he needed to be or wanted to be a co-author. So I just acknowledge his work in this. Um, but he, you know, his, his work in setting this up and how um, meticulous and methodically he was was really critical. And I believe that if we hadn't set this up and watched the surgeon go through it, and particularly the kicking of the switch, we never would have put these pieces together. Now, it turns out, I think, as we mentioned in the paper, um, the company was out of business. So if there was a lawsuit, what would have likely happened is the patient would have had to sue the hospital. There would have been no manufacturer to go to. And there would have been a court battle for years of you know what happened. Now, I'm not sure whether the insurance company was totally happy with what we did or not, frankly, because we found out what happened. Uh, In Mark's report, he pretty much still was saying it was the surgeon's fault, if you will. And I think is with all accidents, it's much more complicated than that. And we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, But uh, they were able to settle more quickly because it was pretty clear that it wasn't the the laser didn't fail. And by the way, we did all the tests of the laser, and we couldn't find any mechanism by which the laser would have failed and created this fire. but it was the recreation and having the real people there I think that was critical. So when you do simulations like this, and I've done a few other of these over the years, I don't make a regular business out of it. It'd be interesting to do. It's just, there's not a lot of demand for it. And that's by the way, why I wrote this paper uh, that I feel like it's really important for, and would be valuable for simulation organizations to make contact with the patient safety and quality people in their organizations, and offer simulation as a technique for root cause analysis. And and that was the focus of this paper. That's why I wrote it, because this just still generally isn't being done. And I don't get to do it very often. I haven't done it for years again. I have done it. And when I've done it, it's just been exceedingly valuable. And by the way, Dan Raymer was asked to go to a hospital in another city, and he ran a simulation, a post-event simulation, uh, not with a device failure, with some other kind of failure, and had all of the participants present, all the real players.
0: So, okay, so I hear you say, you know, we should be pitching to our safety and quality folks that we can help them. So what's what's the pitch? What are, what are we saying to them?
1: When you have an event where you are doing a root cause analysis and you're not really clear what happened, okay. it, it, it doesn't all fit together and there isn't, necessarily an explanation, then consider doing a recreation. I'll call it a simulation, but I could also call it a recreation. Recreate the event. And it can be done with the real participants, but sometimes that's really not appropriate. And you want to have other people come in and play the roles, because that's typically what's done in aviation. And one of the classic teaching videos in all of simulation, of course, is the famous why planes crash it comes from the nova series in the 1970s and what you see there is the nine minutes of the recreation of that crash of course not by the crew because they all died but it's recreated in a simulator an uh, l-1011 simulator by the uh, other pilots and it was only through doing that recreation and playing it out and through the cockpit voice recorder and the participants saying what the People did in the who didn't live through it, that they were able to really piece through the subtle human factors issues of why that plane crashed. So I think there are, are lots of healthcare events that also we could get deeper into the root causes if we do these kinds of recreations. And that's the kind of thing to talk to your patient safety people about.
0: And I could see it that I could offer. Okay, when you have something complicated that's not seeming like you're seeing the obvious answer, call us. We could help you recreate it. We could recruit subjects and bring them through, see how people would behave. We could analyze and create videos of normal responses. It sounds like also we could say, you know, put us on your call list, even if it's something that's happening, and just have us see it, and we'll gather the data and recreate it right away. Don't wait until it's too complicated. Let us be a partner in problem solving and investigating.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, uh, and this video is just fascinating. So, um,
1: you, you know, a couple of things I, I, I could, I want to mention for, for people to think about if they do do this, because the, the idea of having the actual players being present is something you have to, be seriously, give a lot of serious thought to. I, I did do another recreation with a group around an infusion pump failure several years ago, and we had the actual nurses there. And it only became clear when we did the simulation that there were not good feelings between those two nurses, that one was angry with the other uh, because of how the event had played out and blamed the other one for the event. And yet it was still by doing that recreation and having the nurses walk through what they did, what they did, that we could understand better How the medication error occurred.
0: This is so great Jeff. Both you and I are working on several clinical event debriefing projects both at Mass General and and this conversation is really bringing forward the the parallels here. So uh, when you get people to talk about and reflect on real cases right after an event or at the end of a shift, you are dealing with some of that including the interpersonal, but also and a lot of surprises at times. Yep. Here you're saying, well, even if this is a simulation, it's in a way it's a clinical debriefing. Yeah. That's delayed a, by a few days, and it's being not just recalling, but you're at, you you have an adjunct to the recollection, which is doing it again, and this could yep. really amplify, shed light and amplify. And so, uh, as as the field, I think i'm I'm sold. I'm convinced that the field should move into this. We can offer a lot both from the representation and the debriefing point of view and and I'm starting to think, oh well, colleagues around the world they'll have to do the work of of discovering what gets amplified when you do this, what's what gets yep. lost, what's interesting. Yep. what are the guidelines you, for this So this is great.
1: Yeah, when you do the debriefing right after the event. It's called a hot debriefing, as you know. And I would say this is a cooler debriefing and a cold debriefing might be a week or two later. And there are times when each one of those is appropriate, just like there are, again, uh, rare times because it's expensive to do a recreation like this. Uh, But you could do it much more cheaply. You don't need to use a fancy simulation center. You don't need to bring the forensic investigator in. And if you got a team to do it, you could do this. But I don't want to underestimate or uh, or people to take lightly the dangers of having the whole team do it together like this and recreate it depending upon the event. That is if things happen and people aren't happy uh, with each other, it could be super hot in that conversation. And uh, I think hotter than in a a simulation, that when you're simulating the real event that could be super hot between the people so you got to know what you're doing because it reignites
0: even if it cooled down the representation simulation could reignite it yeah um so i just wanted to get one one other question in before you keep on going because you mentioned the malpractice and the risk for litigation and the settlement and the worry about it and that would be running uh high for me too because uh in simulation that's you that's protected educational and it's not real in um, in a clinical debriefing setting I'm thinking it's peer protected it's for it's for learning to what what are those concerns and how does the malpractice insurance company and the risk management group react and what are the things to at least discuss with those groups when we head into this
1: well again this event was 30 years ago and those kinds of issues really weren't a concern to them. Uh, now uh, I would be concerned. I wouldn't do this without being clear about the peer review protection locally. And I don't, I, I think it can be managed just like we're managing it with hot critical incident, you know, critical event debriefings, uh, that you can make it peer review protected. but although the laws depend on your state. So before doing this make and, and then recording it, You'd want to do that. If, again, if it's at a, an event that might be litigated, you'd want to talk to your risk manager in your hospital before you did this and have them involved and take the precautions, which we've done before. Again, in the medication error event I mentioned, we video recorded that, much easier to do because we could use a little handheld camera, uh, but the nurses did not want to be recorded. So they agreed to allow us to record it as long as we didn't have their faces in it. So we did the recording, but just always kept it below so you couldn't identify them. So that's an example of a, the kind of thing you have to be thinking about if you're doing one of these with the, with the real people. And so I, I think talking to your risk manager, that's your link to the insurance company and assuring that you anything that you do is acceptable to them and doesn't create more exposure.
0: So, quality and safety and risk management. This is, this is going to be a three-way partnership.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, if you make the contact with your quality assurance, your QA and safety people, your quality and safety group, which all hospitals have something like that, then they're the people who, who would put you in touch. They're the people to start your partnership with. Mm-hmm. You know, meet those people and say, Hey, I saw this neat article, and yeah, it's all this, you know, video, this podcast or the webinar, and. You know, do you want to talk about this? Maybe there's someday that uh, there'll be an opportunity for you to do this, and and then if it does come up, you know, they'll they'll help you think through these kinds of issues, you know, including do you want the real people there or not?
0: What else do you have uh, prepared to tell us uh, more about the article and the process?
1: Well, um, so that's the event again. Uh, uh, my main theme of, and why I wrote the article, and I think the theme for this discussion is about using simulation for incident investigation. But I, I think for this audience, for people who are interested, the whole process of getting something like this published, the peer review process, the things that I went through, or you know, might also be interesting. Um, and so, a question as you and I were talking about this that came to mind, because I hadn't really thought about it much, As you know, why did it take me 30 years to publish this? I started thinking about it, I think probably two or three years ago. This, that was always on my mind. Uh, but I hadn't thought to publish it. And way back, I couldn't have. I mean, the insurance company in the hospital really wouldn't want me to, even though the case was settled. So it was, it was done. Um, and so I, I never really, I did, I did, by the way, publish another event it didn't have simulation involved, but it was another engineering event that involved a burn from a, a neuromuscular stimulator, stimula, stimulator. I said, simulator, stimulator. And that was also another investigation, but we didn't do have to do a full scale simulation to get to the cause. We just rebuilt it and we could figure out an, from an engineering sense what happened. And we published that and talked about how the engineering group and me personally, by not really supervising it closely enough, uh, what that mistake was in modifying a piece of equipment and how it ended up hurting a patient. Uh, so it's not that I've never published anything about that, but this one just seemed like it was too hot, if you will, you no know, pun intended. And, but it hit me a few years ago when I was giving a lecture and I, I used this video. I went back and I pulled it out. And, and I described this event. And it just reminded me about it all. And I said, you know, I think people need to know about this. I think it would be helpful. So that's what prompted me to start writing it up and just write the story and think about submitting it. And it probably took me, I don't know, it was till I was semi-retired, if you will, till I had more mental space and I could just write something like this, um, that I actually got to do it.
0: So I noticed the guidelines that you showed us before were published as a special article. Mm -hmm. And this is also a special article. So that's, special that's different it's not a research paper it's not a position or an editorial so how did you come about what what does one do to publish a special article what's the process
1: well i didn't start it out that way i uh when you're thinking about publishing anything you have to pick your journal and there are all kinds of considerations and what journal do you want to submit to first that that's a whole conversation in itself and for me, I just had to have the conversation with myself and I thought first, by the way, uh, I submitted it to the Joint Commission on Quality and Safety because I thought it's the quality and safety people that need to hear about this first. And what I got back, I can't remember if there was a reviewer or I just got a letter back from the editor that they weren't interested. And one of the comments was, uh, if this is such good stuff, why isn't everybody doing it after 30 years? Which I thought was a pretty st- stupid comment uh, for an editor. But then again, uh, anytime you're an author and you get the comments back from the reviewers or the editor, that's your first defensive reaction. Uh, so I didn't think that was a, I, I still frankly think that that was not a an appropriate comment, because the reason people aren't doing this is because people don't know about it. There are very few publications. And by the way, there are some, and I referenced those, there are more recent ones, and I, I referenced those in the paper. So there are people who talk about using simulation for root cause analysis. they uh, and some examples of it, and also for failure mode effect analysis, that is a, uh, it's it's kind of the opposite, it's doing the simulation about a process before you actually start it, so you can find out where the possible failures are, and simulation is equally, if not more uh, useful, has the more utility for that application, uh, but I submitted it to that journal, and it got shot down, and so I thought, well, I'll submit it to the simulation audience because I think they'd equally be interested and maybe I had an in I don't I didn't use any uh I didn't I I didn't try to to influence anybody I just submitted it to Mark Sherbo to the journal as an author and he sent it out for review and the reviews were good so they accepted it and I think most journals if you, you know you look through their guidelines and you see where they're where they have some allowance for special articles Uh, And, you know, often you can just write to the editor and say, look, um," you know, it depends on how big a journal it is and how much time they're willing to give to you. The New England Journal isn't going to, but other journals will. And you can write and say, geez, I have this idea. Would you have any thought about it? Or you just do what I did. You just write it because I wanted to write it. I wanted to write the story.
0: That sounds so scary. But I guess in practicality, you write an email, they write you back. Worst Worst they can do is say no or give you an idea of what, you know, where to put it. Yeah, different format or in a different journal. So take home here is you have an idea, either write it up or write to the editor and say, hey, is this interesting. Yep. Yep. And then I found that the peer review process is is generally um, Takes, you know, you get a lot of feedback in the process, you have to really, it's a lot of work, a lot of iterations, but it generally contributes to the to the um, outcomes, frequently I find myself acknowledging the reviewers and saying, you know, like, that was really a great contribution. And um, and so yep. kind of describe, if you don't mind, some about our, your peer review process here in this special article category yeah. and how the yep. your ideas might have been uh, <clears throat> suppressed or encouraged, I, you know? What was that like? Well, the
1: first, As anybody who's an author, I'm sure can tell you, for some or most of their articles, getting that letter back from the editor uh, telling you the things that and reading the reviewers' comments can be very painful, especially when they reject you and you can't be doing this kind of work without getting some rejection. And, uh, And when you get it, just try not to be defensive. You will be anyway, but try not to be and just really seriously look at what the reviewers have to say. And in this case, the reviewers had some really great points. Uh, and it, it really made it a better article. You know, one good example was, I was Convinced that this simulate without this simulation, we never would have figured out what happened and I wrote that in the first And one of the reviewers said, well, how could you know that? Because you didn't compare it to a root cause analysis without simulation. It's like, well, yeah, you're right. So in rewriting the article, I acknowledge that uh, I, I Don't know for sure, but I and, and actually, not only do I not know for sure, when the reviewer put it that way, it didn't just make me write it differently. It made me view it differently. That of course, I don't really know. And then I really started to think, geez, could we have found this with a root cause analysis? And I really don't know.
0: And isn't that uh, so typical, right? To, to be biased so positively towards our own ideas and yeah. towards our, and also towards our actions. Like, of course, it was a good idea. We did it.
1: Yeah. And right. So, but in this case, I really, I, I was a great comment and it taught me something. And I was able to modify the article in a way that was, was acceptable uh, to the reviewer. And it, it made the point. There was another comment. Uh, one of the reviewers was just really into the whole topic of, uh, of doing investigations and all the different root cause. Cause I was that the original article is using simulation for root cause analysis. And one of the reviewers was like, Oh, root cause analysis, almost like it's passe. Like, if you come from the engineering field, uh, the human factors field, you know, it's just one technique and it's not the best technique. And here are all these other techniques. And that this, that I should have had much more in the article talking about all the various techniques of accident investigation and how simulation fits with that. And it's like, Well, and he, and to it, by the way, two of the ones that he mentioned one was called Fram, and I forget what the other one was. I'd never heard of them and so again, this was a great point where I learned from the reviewer he so I went back and I looked these up and I got another paper, one that he recommended, and then another paper and a book uh about other accident investigation methodologies and I allude to it in the article but i I asked the the editor who fortunately agree with me if I I could just not get into that because first of all, there's a word limit and there's no way I could get deeply into that subject.
0: Right. It's like, you don't want them, if they're asking you to do a major review and change your whole paper, sometimes that's appropriate and sometimes you have to talk back and say, you know, I respectfully will incorporate that idea, but we're not going to change all of that. Right. that, yeah, it's, yeah, a, but it's always I... a risky thing, because you risk being rejected. But I think my experience having not that, you know, of course, not as much experience publishing as you have, but uh, or many, uh, it, people seem to, they, they're trying to help you make your paper yeah. better. It's a suggestion. And they respect when you respond point by point to the reviewer comments and say, yep. uh, yeah, we did think of that, but we're not doing it because of X, Y, Z.
1: Yeah, generally that works. It doesn't always work. And I can tell you as an associate editor and I manage a lot of papers and one is fresh in my mind. Uh, actually, it's actually the most recent one, I think, uh, where I actually, no, I was reviewer. This wasn't one was associate as a, the editor. I was a reviewer. And uh, so there was a paper where they uh, they responded to the comments of, there were, I think only two reviewers and almost every comment of mine. And there were, when I review, by the way, I usually have 20 comments I am, I'm a very thorough reviewer uh, and editor and almost every comment they always start, thank you so much for your thoughtful comment. It, it was so condescending because they didn't accept any of my comments. It's like, I, I'm serious, 20 comments. It's like, I think one thing, they changed something in the paper. And it was so condescending and it wasn't, and, you know, I just had to stop and think, look, maybe my comments aren't that useful, but 20, I, I, no, there were things that they could have changed in the paper, and addressed. There was no reason not to, uh, and uh, that paper got rejected. I mean, I wrote back to the editor, and said, uh, "You know, I'm just really disappointed in the response because they didn't respond to any of my comments." So, 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 so I'd be careful about it yes. when you do it. But be don't just be diplomatic and say, "Thank you for your thoughtful comment," but we don't care. We're not going to respond to it anyway.
0: Well, like you said, you incorporated the citations, you reviewed the literature as suggested, but you didn't go back to explore the possibilities of of simulation in each of these. Correct. So we've got a few people who are uh, watching this session live. And so I I would like to invite them to start thinking about um, what they, you know, what they're interested in hearing more about. So for those of you who are joining internationally and from across the U.S., if you We'd like to invite you to um, introduce yourself on the q a uh, chat there and also provide a question or two i think that'll help uh, jeff and i direct the rest of our time together towards uh, new and interesting topics and so i i know we have a jeff you probably have a few more ideas to share about the paper and the process in the meantime we'll invite uh folks to to comment, and I'll be bringing those to you, Jeff, as I'm reading them.
1: One of the questions that you we struggle with as an author is what belongs in the paper and what doesn't. And uh, there was one really other interesting fact about this particular investigation that came out, not from the recreation, but I wouldn't have thought of it without the recreation. And that was about the foot switch, which actually, is in the next slide here let me see if i can so this is the foot switch i saved this i still have this foot switch from 30 years ago um i forget where i put it when i moved but it's around the house somewhere and the thing that was interesting that i I only allude to it in the paper i don't go into detail is that this foot switch has a spring in it and the spring had gotten a little bit floppy so i believe that it was easier if you accidentally, when, when, the, when the surgeon went to push the switch out of the way, when she went to do that, it was easier probably to make the switch activate because the spring was probably a little light. And as far as I know, there are no maintenance requirements. There's no standard for how heavy that spring has to be. But it was a pretty floppy switch. And what was interesting that in- technical the, term there, floppy. Floppy, yeah. It was a little weak. The spring was weak and it was easy to activate, easier than I think it should have been. But in the report that Mark Bruley wrote, it was only mentioned briefly. He didn't really give it the strength that it should have had, I think, that it made it easier for the surgeon to depress the switch hard enough so that it would activate the laser. And if there were, some culpability, it was like, well, I was the Associate Director of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, that group reported to me, you could have argued that somebody should have been looking at the, checking the spring periodically, which I don't think anybody does. Um, and, 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 and by the way, the, another kind of switch you can use, which we, we didn't use because they got a new laser, they retired that laser and got one with a standby, But for the switch like this, you can buy buy it. I don't know if they're all made like this, where you can't press the switch unless you put your foot all the way in and there's a lever in the back and you have to push that lever before you can push down on the switch. And that's another protective mechanism. Uh, But I didn't get into all that in the article because it wasn't relevant to to the article.
0: Right, maybe in an ergonomics and human factors audience, that that might be part of the key right. message in terms of forward, but here this wasn't. Uh, but right. I always find it so interesting to talk to authors about what what else was going on that didn't quite make it. Um, so, you know, one of the other areas that I'm interested in, Jeff, is um, done some work with the society around fellowships in healthcare simulation and. Mm-hmm. Um, actually with colleagues. We're writing a special article about a debate we did uh, around accreditation. But this conversation around opportunities for healthcare simulation-nistas in patient safety and quality or in collaboration has gotten me thinking around what are my own learning gaps? What mm. don't I know about patient safety and quality that I maybe should know? And I'm fellowship-trained healthcare simulation so. Um, If you had to kind of brainstorm here, what do you think could be part of the core curriculum of people in training in healthcare simulation? What should we know about patient safety and quality that's super high yield?
1: Um, Well, there's so much I can't immediately give you or the, where to start uh, even, even well certainly the basics of patient safety I mean most people don't understand about how accidents happen the fact that you shouldn't be blaming the people it's really the system what the system issues are I see to have a deep understanding about what's the process by which things go wrong in healthcare or in any industry and uh, and and how this kind of work is done in, in other industries as well and certainly root cause analysis analysis and other uh, root cause analysis because it is the most popular common technique that's used in healthcare for investigating adverse events. So I, that, that is something that I have people generally learn about, learn about that technique uh, both using simulation, which there is a program for um, Jared Cutson and um, uh, oh my goodness, just <laughs> my good friend out in uh in California. Just, but, oh, Connie, uh, Connie Lopez. Connie Lopez. Uh, yeah, Connie and, and Jared put on a great, several great workshops using simulation to teach root cause analysis, and they have a paper about that. I don't think that's in the references. Uh, so that would be some, those are, you know, first the basis for patient safety and how things go wrong. You know, generally speaking, how you go about preventing, not errors, but recovering from errors, and then how you investigate adverse events. Those would be core topics that i think people would want to learn about
0: yeah and i think thinking also as a physician there's whole system-based practice would align with this idea of the systems are part of the accident and like you're saying it's the heavy clog that the surgeon was wearing it's the the the, the kicking of the switch it's the, the the spring of the switch the where you place the the laser on the drape all these things have to align together right. for the fire to actually ignite and um, I don't think yeah, myself frequently thinking that way especially my lens on healthcare simulation is so much about high performance and um, competency and excellence and skills and reflective practice so I think uh, potentially a recommendation is for people who are training in healthcare simulation to get that systems-based
1: yeah actually actually this event if you wanted to teach a course in that this event is a great event you could take this and ask people to think through what are all the contributors of this event how would you do the root cause analysis and instead of what the forensic investigator did was kind of put the onus on the surgeon which i think is the wrong thing to do it's How did the system contribute to this? Because that laser was an old laser that didn't have a standby switch. So what is the process in a hospital for determining what equipment is obsolete? There could have been a laser standby nurse, which I think most hospitals didn't have, some were having at the time. Uh, What are all the things to think through and use this event, not just to learn about how to use simulation to investigate, to use the simulation to help you learn about how how events happen. So this might be a great story for that
0: Well um, I think it this has been really helpful to think about An actual event your process for you to write it and thinking forward about um, How simulation can help solve these kind of problems and others. I know i um, at CMS, we're focused on solving institutional problems, healthcare problems, educational problems, and uh, here you're giving us one more window. I I wonder if you might, um, just looking at the chat messages and what we're you know in wrapping up here, I wonder if you might uh, take a chance and give us a glimpse of the future uh, and where what are some other opportunities that you think. Uh, Folks in simulation could contribute to going forward. Where's where's the field going? What will it evolve into?
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's a that's a big question. So should, uh, should we invest <laughs> in plastics? Plastics? Uh, yeah, right? plastic, plastics. Benjamin. Yes, for for those who the few people who have actually seen the graduate big at graduate. least once. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a crystal ball. When people ask me to prognosticate about anything, especially about the current world, I've just given up. I don't have any confidence in my predictive ability for anything anymore. Uh, so given that caveat, uh, I'll s- still say that given, especially the current circumstances of the crisis we're in and how much we've seen remote learning as change what, we, what we're doing. Uh, years ago, I was saying I think most physical simulation is going to go away, not all of it. Uh, but I think we're seeing now how people have been forced to adapt to use remote learning and virtual reality and all kinds of uh, techniques like that to, to do simulations, to do education. And, and we're, I think we're learning how to do it better. I, again, I don't think all the physical will or should go away, but for people who aren't jumping in and using this crisis as an opportunity to develop their online techniques and tools Uh, You're, you're, you're missing the boat. You know, I'm really challenged by it, frankly, even a webinar like this. It's like, how can you make a webinar like this really interesting? I mean, I don't know. For the people who watch it, you got to tell us, is this the way to run it? Or should it be something else we should do? Because I, I talked with some friends today. I was on a call with a webinar with, or a Zoom call with. It's like, well, how do you make them really interesting? And well, I've, how got why kids,
0: a, I've got my kids singing in the background, so I hope that's making it interesting. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. You know, I have my background all the horses has come by, but I, I try to have the, I try to get the horses to come by to make it interesting. but uh, you know it's like how do I as a speaker alter the way I speak to keep you engaged? Because I know what you know the, there are people on the call they're doing what I'm often doing is they're multitasking. they're doing something else and I assume they're multitasking because that's the way of the world. If they're in an audience, it's like, well, you can't do that. Don't look at your phone, but that doesn't work anymore. So how do we use that to our advantage? What do I do and the way I speak and the way I use my slides and how I change the slides and the nature of slides to make these guys of presentations better? So I think for all of us as educators, we have to be using this crisis as an opportunity to get us think, to think about how to do all of this a lot better. I know a lot of people are. I mean, I see this going on, so it's it's great.
0: I think you're the master of this. I mean, this very paper is crisis into opportunity. Yeah, um, you you took the event. You 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 did get summoned to the fire, but then you turned it into an investigation and uh, lots of other investigations, and now a publication that hopefully will seed uh, further work and you know through this mechanism. I we we just got a chance, Jeff, to publish a series of interviews that you did with my colleague, Mary Fay mm-hmm. on our website about the history of simulation. And I, I just think you've, you've have, had that talent and uh, I, you called it serendipity, but really you've just been relentless in taking those opportunities. And I personally really appreciate that for as a model, but also for what it has given us uh, in, in healthcare, in patient safety for me as a career. So oh, I, I, I want to say that in gratitude for for your work, but also for joining us today uh, in this session.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. I hope it's of interest to people, and hope we'll get some feedback about it.
0: If you don't mind clicking to the next slide, I have a couple of closing um, thoughts to share. Oh, right. oh, there we go. So um, um, you know, because we're trying to innovate uh, through the pandemic and. Uh, built on about uh, almost 10 years of teaching online. We have several programs available to all of you. We've got Dash radar training, which sounds kind of dry, but it's a peer faculty development strategy around debriefing training. You get to really elevate your evaluation of other people debriefing on your own. Uh, join us for that uh, training tomorrow or every quarter we offer it. Janice Palaganis was pictured here. She's also leading the feedback course, a longitudinal uh, multi-week series of sessions. I found that course to be excellent in terms of transforming uh, what we were talking about, receiving feedback, whether it's from the editor or from your colleagues or your everyday life, there's feedback in everything and that course really uh, helps you work through that. And uh, this very week we're in the middle of our healthcare simulation essentials course. We've moved the whole curriculum online, and I personally think it's thriving. Folks who are interested in healthcare simulation are rapidly getting into simulating and debriefing online, as well as changing all their aspects of themselves as an educator. And uh, Jeff, next slide, if you don't mind. I wanna let people know that the next two weekly webinars, uh, next week, we've got an open forum, Ask Anything, We, when you register, you get to post some questions. Um, Ann Mullen, our program manager and myself, bring other faculty from our team and answer your questions live and get into some lively discussions and debates. We certainly don't all see it the same way. And we'd love to to talk through both the literature, the practice and the future as we see it. And then the next week, another really great innovation, uh, if you can click one more time, Jeff, Design thinking informed simulation. So, this is uh, not the root cause analysis, but the, the design, the innovation to test, evaluate, and modify the clinical infrastructure. Um, Chris Hicks, Andrew Petrosnyak, and Carrie White, they're going to be interviewed uh, by Jenny Rudolph. She's going to be moderating the panel on presentation on how they're using design thinking informed simulation to. Um, make us better, stronger, faster. And I, I think that's going to be a great session They're They're a great team from uh, from Toronto. And uh, we're excited to have them here. I can't remember if we've got one more slide there or not. But um, I uh, want to, oh, yeah, um, the final. That's me with a beard from before COVID. Um, and my colleague, Mary Faye. And uh, together, we'd like to finally invite any of you with specialized problems in your institution. If you need some help getting started with healthcare simulation, if you need a, to develop rapidly develop a curriculum or uh, broaden your faculty development opportunities, give us a call. We'd love to help you out, get a sense of where you're at and um, see if we could be a part of it. So thank you everybody, uh, especially Jeff um, for joining us today and uh, Anne for uh, organizing the session. I hope you enjoyed it and got something out of it, as I certainly did. And I look forward to seeing you all for next week's session. Thank you so much,
2: and good night. Good night.